you'll join me by looking in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 18. It's been quite a long time since we have been in the book of Proverbs. In fact, it was April of last year. And that is a long, long time to be away from this great book. We've been in a long series of messages from the book of Proverbs, dating all the way back to April 22nd of 2001. That's a long, long time. And of course, you might be saying, does it really take almost seven years to preach through the book of Proverbs? Well, at the rate we're going, it's going to take a lot more time. Remember, on Sunday nights, it takes us twice as long to complete our exposition of Scripture because of the fact that we only meet every other Sunday evening. And, of course, we're always, it seems, taken up with so many other good things. And having taken off the entire summer and even in the fall for some of those other things, including doing some wonderful Q&As with you, we now return to this marvelous Old Testament book of wisdom, taking a look tonight at Proverbs chapter 18. You follow along as I read this chapter. Reading from the New American Standard Bible, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall is his own imagination. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility comes before honor. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. 
He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If I may tonight, I would like to try to cover the entire chapter. Now I hear that comic relief coming from you, and I know that that sounds formidable even to my own soul, but if we ever hope to get through these Proverbs before the rapture of the church, I want to see if I can speed up a little bit, and even using tonight as a test case to see whether or not we can get through one proverb chapter each time we preach. Now, after you wake up from your coma, I want to tell you that I think it's possible. And I think it's possible because as this particular chapter is laid out and as we go through the rest of them, they may not lend themselves to it. But this chapter, I believe, is possible for us to do this because there are really just two ways that I think this proverb is laid out for us. And under the title, Living Life the Way It's Supposed to Be Lived, I want to show you, as the Proverbs have done so often in our studies, giving us these two ways, namely the right way and the wrong way. Under two outline points, they are these. The wrong way to live, the wrong way to live, with a colon, that is, the speech and conduct of unbelievers. That's in verses one to 12. The wrong way to live, that is, the wrong way to have an unbelieving speech and unbelieving conduct. And I'll, I think you'll see this coming through as we go through this chapter. And then secondly, outline point number two, the right way to live. The right way to live, that is, the wisdom and conduct of believers, or the wisdom and choices of believers. In the latter part of verse 12 and then going all the way through to verse 24. An easy outline, an easy way to remember this very important chapter of the book of Proverbs. And if you're ready to strap on your spiritual seatbelt, we'll fly through this chapter so you can see all of the proverbial wisdom King Solomon wants to share with us from God's precious treasure. Let's look first at outline point Number one, the wrong way to live. That is the speech and the conduct of unbelievers. Like many of the Proverbs in these previous chapters, this first section of Proverbs chapter 18 in verses 1 to 12 has a great deal to do with the speech of the non-Christian. Now I use, of course, the word non-Christian because the Old Testament belongs to the Christian too. It's a Christian book. It belongs to us as Christians. We have a goldmine of Christian truth right here in our Old Testament, rooted and grounded in ancient Old Testament language and literature, to be sure, culturally and historically sometimes very unfamiliar to us. That is also true. But oh, so useful today for us in the body of Christ as believers in Jesus Christ. For instance, I want you to notice 
how non-Christians talk and how this is definitely not the way believers in Jesus should live their lives. Listen to what first characterizes the speech of unbelievers. And we're going to be looking at six characteristics of the speech of unbelievers. All right? That's the first part underneath this little outline point number one. Six characteristics of the speech of unbelievers. And then we'll talk about the very conduct of these unbelievers. But first, six characteristics of their speech. Number one, unbelievers quarrel. Unbelievers quarrel. I can only give, because of that time that I want to try to spend in the entire chapter tonight, only a few minutes of each of these, but at least a few minutes will do for us. And in verse 1, you notice what it says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Now, of course, not all unbelievers, but many unbelievers are known for separating themselves from those who could otherwise help them. They are divisive, and they simply won't listen to others, whether it's their family or their friends or anyone else who could otherwise help them. They want to be fiercely independent. And can't you see that in that verse? He who separates himself seeks his own desire. They're lone rangers. And they'll not listen to sound judgment. And Solomon says it's because he seeks his own desire. Or we could say for his own self-gratification. He's selfish. And according to the second part of the verse, it's against any and all sound wisdom. And when the sound wisdom comes, he quarrels with it. It may even be that he quarrels because he's being given sound judgment. Nevertheless, he rejects it, and he walks away from you, and he's quarreling with you all the way, even as your sound judgment is trying to tell him, warning him not to do so. By the way, that idea of quarreling is literally from a phrase that means to bear the teeth. It's someone who's bearing their teeth at you. They're quarreling with you. Mark it down, my friends. Unbelievers quarrel. Haven't you seen it? Unbelievers quarrel. Number two, unbelievers only want you to listen to them. Unbelievers only want you to listen to them. Verse two, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. As our second characteristic suggests, an unbeliever here called a fool isn't looking for wisdom or for understanding, but is only wanting you to listen to what he has to say. Isn't it true? If he isn't attempting to quarrel with you, he's attempting to engage you in a conversation for the sole purpose of letting you know what he thinks. He doesn't care what you think. He only cares what he thinks. He's not at all interested in your point of view, only his. He rejects understanding, he rejects wisdom, he rejects knowledge, and yet he desperately wants you to adopt his way of thinking. Ever met someone like that? They're all around us. They could be in your workplace. They could be in your school. They might even be in your home. Unbelievers quarrel, and unbelievers only want you to listen to what they have to say. Thirdly, third characteristic of the speech of unbelievers, unbelievers don't have the deep, practical 
verbal knowledge that believers do. Unbelievers don't have the deep, practical, verbal knowledge that believers do. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Now it's difficult to say whether this is an antithetic proverb, that is, one that contrasts the first line from the second. Usually those antithetic proverbs are pretty easily discerned. We don't know if this is a particular antithetic one or if it's a synonymous proverb. That is, the second line reinforces the first. If it's antithetical, then the proverb may be saying something about an unbeliever that his words are deep waters. Maybe that's the idea that because he says they are deep water, his words, that his words are obscure, that his words are confusing, that the depth of his words provides a level of obscurity. Maybe even because this phrase deep waters could even be seen as something with danger in it. A man's words are like deep waters in the sense that there's danger to his words. And then, of course, if it's antithetical, then the next part of the proverb, the fountain of wisdom, is a bubbling brook. That, of course, means that someone who's giving wise, intimate understanding and knowledge from God's Word, the wellspring of his life comes from God's Word, that it's like a fountain, it's a bubbling brook, it rises instead of goes deeper. That may be what it means. But if it's a synonymous proverb, then it's something like this. The words of a man's mouth are like deep waters in the sense of profound or rich. Deep. Deep as in profound or rich. If it's synonymous then, you can see that the rest of the proverb, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook, expands on that idea. If someone's words are like deep waters and they are rich and profound, a man's words are like the fountain of a bubbling brook. Whether you go deep down, he's profound. Whether you go up and you have the splashing wisdom of a fountain, either way, a man is wise. I tend to think this may be antithetical. And that idea that a man's mouth are like deep waters is that idea that his speech is obscure and confusing and dangerous like the depths. You don't know what's down there. Nevertheless, even if it was synonymous, verse 4 could tell you by its contrast, of course, that if a wise man has the kind of knowledge that is deep and rich, the kind of knowledge that fountains up like a bubbling brook, that's the kind of person you want to be like. You don't want to be like the unbeliever who really, when they have something to say, only say things that are unwise. They don't have the verbal knowledge that's practical and deep like the believer does. Number four, number four, unbelievers cause constant verbal strife. They cause strife with their speech. Look at verse 6. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. Isn't that graphic? This is the unbeliever whose words bring so much vexation to the soul that his verbal actions bring fisticuffs. 
may even be literal. This guy gets in a fight. I can't tell you how many times I have gone to a major sporting event and had to look around because the police were scurrying over somewhere to pull people apart because they're arguing, arguing and fighting with each other. That is so common. Usually, of course, related to drunkenness. And people have these verbal war of wits with each other. And it often comes to blows. That's what Solomon is saying here. And whether this is in the context of a court situation with the blows being some kind of punishment for a criminal, that's what some believe, or we're merely talking about a person whose words bring a violent reaction from people, this is not what should characterize Christians. This is not how Christians ought to live. This is how unbelievers live. They cause constant verbal strife. Number five, unbelievers and their mouths cause their own demise. Unbelievers' mouths cause their own demise. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. Wow, if you connect that with the previous proverb, it actually goes further and tells us what the consequences are of the fool's mouth. You know, in this life, he may receive blows, whether metaphorically or literally. But in the next life, he's going to be punished by the very snare of his soul. His mouth gets him into such trouble, and it causes him either earthly or even eternal destruction. That's the mouth of a fool. Solomon says the non-Christian will ultimately have his own, snow, his own soul ensnared forever. Oh, how the, the lips of a person can do so much good. Like Aaron Hefner preaching the gospel in Senegal, West Africa, and yet how so the tongue can bring utter destruction. Ruin, Solomon says. Ruin. Like Galatians 6 speaks of, you reap what you sow. Number six, the first in our little list here, and this is a big one, unbelievers gossip. Unbelievers gossip. Look at verse 8. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. Now, if you've noticed, this is completely identical with Proverbs 26, 22. You might write that down in the margin. Someone who is a whisperer is none other than a gossip. And how many times have you seen or experienced or even you yourself when you were outside of Christ being accused and guilty of gossip, the love of gossiping, the desire to listen to the dainty morsels Solomon says. They're juicy, dainty morsels, going into the deepest part of the body with satisfaction and with glee. Now, it doesn't say that the gossip is something that is spread that isn't true. It could be true, but it's spoken to the wrong person at the wrong time and for the wrong reason and for the wrong motivation. One commentator writes this, listening to gossip is as easy as eating candy. Stopping a gossip who is about to share some tasty tidbit of news with you is harder than pushing away from a delicious dessert. The fact is, unbelievers 
thrive on gossip. They characteristically gossip, and those who do it characteristically listen to gossip, and they're in serious danger of having their soul ensnared. Now, that's the speech of unbelievers. Now, let's look at the conduct. The conduct. Five characteristics of the conduct of unbelievers. Look at verse 3. Back up to verse 3. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. How did I characterize that? Well, I said it this way. Unbelievers act with contempt. They have contempt in their heart, and it follows them everywhere they go. Here's a picture of a wicked man who, wherever he goes, contempt contempt is surely to follow him. Because where he goes, contempt follows after. And wherever he's going, look what else follows after him. Dishonor and scorn. Dishonor could be shame and scorn could be insults. He's insulted because he's brought shame on himself and he does so because wherever he goes, he's seen as a contemptible man. Since he's the kind of man he is, his wickedness brings at the same time contempt and dishonor and insults. It's like he comes and the shadows of his three selves follow after. Contempt, dishonor, and scorn. Number two, unbelievers show partiality. Unbelievers show partiality. Look at verse 5. To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. Now this, I think, characterizes again the unbeliever who tends to show partiality to the wicked. And what he does is that he says to the wicked, you're guiltless, go free. And he says to the righteous person, the just person, the innocent person, you're guilty, go to jail. That's what the wicked person does. By the way, this idea of, of showing partiality, literally in the Hebrew, it's to lift the face up. And what it means is somebody like this. They've come into a courtroom and they know they're guilty and they have shame because of it. And because of that shame, they drop their face. They drop their countenance. They're not even willing to lift up their face to look at the judge because they know the gavel is going to come down and they know they're guilty. And instead, the judge lifts their face up and says, not guilty. They know they're guilty, but they get off the hook. And in that same courtroom scene, it's like the wicked judge turns around And an innocent person who has no reason to have his face drop, the judge takes his head and pushes it down and says, guilty. That's what the wicked does. Unbelievers show partiality. It's a horrible sin. Number three, unbelievers don't work hard. They don't work hard. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 of Proverbs 18. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Wow, what a graphic proverb. 
While it is not true that this proverb characterizes, of course, all unbelievers, it certainly does a good many of them. Solomon suggests that a lazy man and a person who likes to destroy are like brothers. They're like brothers. J. Adams calls in his commentary the brother who destroys a demolition expert. A demolition expert. And since Solomon is comparing the two, I guess they both should be considered the same. Your laziness can be like a demolition expert. You destroy everything around you because you're not willing to work. You're not willing to do the right thing. Lazy, slothful. And what happens with that laziness? Everything around you, including your family and your life, all falls apart. It is destroyed, just like a demolition expert goes into a house and takes that battering ram, that big ball, and just destroys it all. That's just like a lazy man. Unbelievers don't work hard. Number four, unbelievers trust in themselves and their own resources. Unbelievers trust in themselves and their own resources. Look at verses 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. Now obviously this proverb is contrastive. If you trust in the Lord as the Christian does... You will see the Lord, the name of the Lord, like a strong tower. You'll see the Lord as though He is personified in a strong tower. And in that ancient day, when the marauding bands were coming by, they would run, everyone who could, into the strong, fortified tower in the city that would give them some kind of respite from the marauding band. And that's exactly what Solomon says here. If you're a Christian... You trust in the name of the Lord. The righteous runs into that tower and is safe from all of his enemies. But not so for the non-Christian. He's trusting in himself and his own resources. Look at verse 11 again. A man, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. It's not the strong tower. It's not the name of the Lord. It's in his riches. It's in his wealth. And like a high wall, he thinks it's going to keep him safe. He thinks he's fortified because he has his riches. But that's his own imagination. He presumes, wrongly so, that it will guard him like the wall of protection. But it won't. He doesn't realize, especially when it's oh so late, that it's his own destruction. You can't trust in those things. You can't trust in yourself. How many unbelievers do you know who who trust in their stocks and their bonds and their money and their riches and their power and their influence? And number five, unbelievers are haughty. Unbelievers are haughty. Look at the first part of verse 12. Before destruction, even like the destruction of the rich man who thinks that his money is like a strong city, he's proud, he's arrogant, he's haughty, and before destruction, presumably right before it, and certainly in it, he's proud. That's the last characteristic of the conduct of the unbeliever, his lack of humility. And of course, that's so fitting Every man who is perpetually proud shows himself to be so until it's too late. 
Destruction comes upon him. Remember the guy in the Gospels who had all of these riches and he had more in these barns than he could possibly fill. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. And Jesus said to him, you fool. Just like the Proverbs. You fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you possess? Unbelievers are proud. They're haughty. Now, I went over that very, very quickly because that's a hideous picture. That's a terrible picture. Nobody wants to be there. And if you're there, listen very carefully to what we go over next. This is that second outline point, the right way to live. Don't be like these unbelievers. Don't be like them. That's the wrong way to live. Here's the right way. Here are the wisdom and choices of believers Here are their words and here is their conduct. Look at the latter part of verse 12 and you can see the first of four characteristics of the wisdom of believers. Here it is. But humility comes or goes before honor. Humility goes before honor. What's the first characteristic of the wisdom of believers? They're humble. They're the opposite of the haughty. They're humble. You see the contrast? A proud person will inevitably experience either temporal temporal or eternal destruction, while the Christian, those who are characteristically humble, before the deliverance of the terrible judgment, they're going to be honored. Why? Because humility goes before honor. And again, whether it's in this life or in the life to come, The proud man is haughty. The humble man is exalted. That's the first characteristic of a righteous man, a Christian. He's humble. He's dependent. He's dependent on the Lord Jesus. He knows from which he has been delivered, and it is the deliverance from hell. He has been delivered, and he's humbled by that. Number two, believers are prudent and knowledgeable. Prudent and knowledgeable. Verse 15, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. You see the contrast? It's as though Solomon is giving us very clear in black and white terms the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, the true and the false, the right way to live, the wrong way to live. And he says here, In essence, for us in the New Covenant age, true believers in Jesus recognize that He, Christ, is the source of all wisdom. He's wisdom personified. And when you search for Christ, like Colossians says, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You acquire knowledge, understanding, wisdom, all the things that Solomon has been saying to us. You pursue that course of action, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and you'll receive it. If you search for it, you'll find it. And how do you search for it? Solomon says right here in verse 15, you first listen to it with your ear. You hear it. If you're not even hearing the truth, if you're not even availing yourself of the truth, how are you going to gain it? The ear has to allow the mind to apprehend the truth. It's what you hear. It's what your eyes see. 
and it'll lead to Christ. And Christ will lead you to be prudent and knowledgeable. Number three, I love this, believers satisfy themselves with fruitful words. Believers satisfy themselves with fruitful words. Verse 20, with the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Now, if you take this metaphorically, it has Solomon saying that a Christian is one who is satisfied in his spiritual stomach because he's reaping the fruit of his own words coming down oh so smoothly and wonderfully. Picture it in your mind. It's a wise person continually speaking words, receiving words like the verse before it, receiving words and then speaking fruitful words and then being satisfied with the very words that he's speaking. Fruitful words, giving him luscious fruit to eat, to be satisfied with, to be satiated with. And the second part of the proverb is just like it. If you speak righteously, you'll be satisfied with the product of your lips. Oh, seek to satisfy yourself with fruitful words. It'll pay huge spiritual rewards if you do. Number four, believers recognize the power of the tongue. Believers recognize the power of the tongue. Look at verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Just let that sink in. What a razor sharp proverb. Because it cuts both ways. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Whether you're talking positively or negatively, namely, life-giving words being powerful or death-giving words being powerful, both are incredibly important. And for you and me as Christians, if we recognize the profound differences of the two, we'll be blessed. We'll be blessed. As a believer... You want to eat of the fruit of life-giving words. And you want to be a person who yourself speaks life-giving words. Giving people the truth of God spoken in love, and while sometimes it may hurt, out of the hurt comes healing, and out of the healing comes life, and out of the life comes joy. And if you're a person who wants to be joyful and who wants to speak joyful words and who wants to impart life to people, Solomon says that death or life is in the power of the tongue and you better choose life. You better choose life. It imparts life. You want your words to bring healing, not hurt. And if your tongue pours forth in contrast, death-giving words. You'll reap, even yourself, the deathly fruit which comes from it. Death, destruction. This is a proverb that we ought to linger long over. 
Our words can injure. Our words can, can even kill, Solomon says. And he may not be speaking literally there, but certainly the death-giving words of a person can injure deeply. And we'll receive the fruit of it. If you love to give death-giving words to others, you're like an unbeliever who only wants to injure and hurt and maim with their words. But if you want to be life-giving, if you want to be a person who is known for giving healthy words, even when sometimes it hurts, it ultimately heals. And the health-giving words of this proverb mean that you yourself will have the fruit of it. You love it, you'll have the fruit of it. These are these are incredible contrasts to the way unbelievers live. Unbelievers know nothing of this. And while believers may know sometimes the error of the unbelievers, they're characterized by these things because it is wisdom, it is knowledge, it is understanding that they receive because it is the right way to live. Now the last characteristics of the conduct of believers I want to give you now. Number one. Number one. And you thought we'd be through really early. This is one of nine. One of nine. The first one. Here it is. Believers listen to both sides of a dispute before answering. Believers listen to both sides of a dispute before answering. This is the choice of a believer. So what a believer characteristically does, verse 13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. You see, one thing that ought to characterize true Christians is that they are thoughtful and that they don't speak before they know what's really going on. Why? Because this proverb says that it's folly and shame if you do that very thing, if you speak before you really hear. Who wants to be characterized by folly and shame? Certainly the Christian cannot be. I like what one commentator does in translating the proverb this way. Those who respond before they listen are stupid and a disgrace. Now who wants to be characterized in that way? Nobody does. If you're a believer in Christ, you want to be a person who is seen as prudent and wise and who is thoughtful and who sees through the arguments because they've waited. Pastor Tim Sin is an example that immediately comes to my mind as one who personifies this, a person who is thoughtful, who thinks through the issues, who determines before he speaks what is the right course here? How do I determine the right answer? I need all of the facts laid before me. He's measured in his responses and he seeks to hear all the answers before he himself responds. And when he finally responds, his words are wise and graceful. We all ought to be that way. It's folly and shame if you answer before you really know, before you hear the facts. Believers shouldn't be characterized that way. Number two, believers guard against a broken spirit. Believers guard against a broken spirit. Verse 14, 
The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? Oh, what a great reminder to maintain your spiritual equilibrium. What a great reminder. Here's the gist of it. If a man is physically sick, his spirit, his mind, his heart will sustain him through the sickness. Why? Because he believes he's going to get better. He believes he's going to overcome it. But if a person is spiritually sick, that is, they have a broken spirit, Solomon said it's almost impossible to bear. Physical sickness is one thing, but spiritual depression is entirely another. Look at chapter 17, verse 22 of Proverbs. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Beloved, make sure you are continually nourishing yourself spiritually in the Word, in prayer, in the fellowship of God's people, in service, in giving, all of the varied means of grace. Because if you don't, you can very easily and in short order dry up with a broken spirit. Bruce Waltke writes this, Since no one can bear a broken spirit, it implicitly prevents its possessor from finishing the course and brings him down in an untimely defeat. When the spirit is gone, a person is as good as dead. Of course, we know that a believer can't ultimately lose their salvation, but you can certainly lose the joy of it. You can be so discouraged, so depressed, because you're spiritual equilibrium is out of balance because you're not in the Word, you're not in prayer, you're not, you're not fellowshipping with God's people, you're not giving, you're not worshiping as you should and all of the means of grace at your disposal that you're not taking advantage of and you can become discouraged to the point where you believe your spirit has been broken and you want to give up. Believers guard against that. Believers guard against that with a vengeance. Because we don't want to go there. Number three, believers don't bribe or coerce others. Believers don't bribe or coerce others. Verse 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. You say, what does that mean? Well, it could be either positive or negative. Solomon could be teaching that a gift given with the right motives at the right time may give you some level of benefit and that's an okay thing. He could be saying that. Or, negatively, the proverb could be saying something like this. If you give a gift that is a bribe and it's because you want a favor in return, you want to appear before great men, or maybe this is in a court setting, and you want to give a bribe so that the outcome will be in your favor, believers guard against that. They don't bribe. They don't coerce others. They guard against that. They don't want to do that because that's unrighteous. That's not what a believer characteristically wants to do. He wants to be removed from that. Number four. Number four. Believers wait to judge a matter until after all the facts have come in. Believers wait to judge a matter until after all the facts have come in. Look at verse 17. 
largely akin to verse 13, but different. Verse 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. I can't tell you how many times this particular proverb and verse 13 has come in handy for me in counseling situations when somebody, whether it's a husband-wife situation or a dispute between believers or whatever it may be, has come in handy because Christians so often lose sight of this. This proverb teaches us as Christians not to form hasty judgments. That's what he's saying. Weigh all the evidence in a matter. Be careful. There's a dispute in a situation. Do everything you can not to render a judgment until after all of the facts have come in. Be patient. It may look like the first person who comes in and presents his case is airtight. How many times have you been watching a court situation on television and somebody comes in and they present a case or maybe you've read an article or a book on some high-profile case and somebody presents an argument and you say, that's open and shut. That person's guilty. I know that. And then... After the prosecution rests, the defense presents their case, and you say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not so easy. And so whether you're talking about being a juror, literally, or being someone who's just adjudicating the dispute between believers, believers refrain from rendering judgment until after all of the facts have come in. Pause with your verdict so that you can hear both sides. Number five, believers trust in the providence of God. Believers trust in the providence of God. Verse 18, the cast lot, the lot that is cast, puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. Now, I say that this is trusting in God's providence as a believer because that's really how this proverb was understood in its original context. Now, we don't have that same context in our own day. They didn't have the full revelation of Scripture. They didn't have the person of the Holy Spirit in the same way as New Covenant believers do. And so they couldn't always rely on the printed page, on the written word. And sometimes in a dispute, maybe even in a court situation, and especially you remember with the Urim and Thummim, there was an opportunity for a lot to be cast, for God to decide in a matter. When there was a dispute of of major significance, maybe even a court of law, they would cast lots. Ultimately, when they couldn't decide who was right, who was wrong, they cast lots. And those believers at that time trusted in the providence of God, that if the lot was cast for them, they were affirming the rightness of the verdict. And if the verdict was cast against them because of the lot, they would say, the will of the Lord be done. Could you do that? In our day and age, we can say something like this. Trust in the providence of God. Look at what He appears to be doing in His gracious providence in the circumstances and issues of life. But because that's not foolproof, read the Scripture Rely on the person of the Holy Spirit for strength and discernment. Trust other believers as they teach you accurately and fairly the Scripture. And then do everything you can with all of those things at your disposal to trust in the providence of God. 
Because after all of those things, then that would be able, in theory, to allow you to decide between disputes of people, like he says here, mighty ones. Number six, believers work hard not to offend others. Believers work hard not to offend others. Verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Now, whether it's referring to your own blood brother or it's referring to a spiritual brother, Christians ought to work hard not to offend others. That's, of course, completely different than unbelievers who often couldn't care less who they offend, but believers care deeply for their brethren, and they don't want to offend. Solomon says here, if your brother's offended, if you offend them, and of course the idea would be that you genuinely offended them, not just what they presume, but you really did offend them, you knew it and they knew it, they can be harder to win, he says, than a what? strong city, a fortified city, impregnable. The idea that this is so difficult. I sinned against them and I've gone to entreat them to forgive me and it appears as though their offense is so great it's like a fortified city and I can't get through. I can't get through on any side. I can't get through to their heart. If that's true, and Solomon says it is, then work hard at not doing it. Work hard at not offending your brother or sister. He says contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Boy, you just raise up those bars and the contention is there and the offense has occurred and it's like a fortified city that you just cannot penetrate. Work hard at not offending brothers. Number seven. Believers who find righteous spouses find divine gifts. Believers who find righteous spouses find divine gifts. You say, where did this proverb come from? It seems out of kilter, out of character. No, it really isn't. You know what Solomon is doing? He's saying, I'm teaching you how to be a believer in any and all circumstances, including disputes, and including finding a spouse. Notice what he says in verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. You find a wife, you found something good. A righteous wife, a good wife. He says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Good, righteous, not thing, good, right? You found a godly wife. That's a divine gift. That's favor from the Lord. I've told you many, many times, if I didn't have my wife, Beth, not only would I be a basket case, but I wouldn't have a ministry because everything around me flows out of her support, her love, her commitment, all of those things, her sacrifice, so that I may do all that I am doing. I've found a good wife, 
and I've obtained favor from the Lord. It's like a divine gift. Believers who find righteous spouses find those kinds of gifts. If you're a woman and you found a good, righteous man who leads you spiritually, you've found a good thing. You've found favor from the Lord. You've been gifted by the Lord. Believers recognize that. Believers acknowledge that. When's the last time you acknowledged, even to that spouse, you've found a good thing? That you've found favor, a gift from the Lord. And I guess I should say at this point, Solomon is not our best example here. He's not our best example here. But Scripture through him, nevertheless, gives us some real, solid, biblical wisdom. And you know what else is interesting about this? Notice what it says. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Look back at Proverbs chapter 8. This is finding lady love. Look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 35. Proverbs 8, 35. This is lady wisdom. For he who finds me, that's lady wisdom, the wisdom of the Word of God, for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So whether you're talking about finding your lady love or you're talking about finding lady wisdom, if you find them, you've obtained favor from the Lord. Christians recognize that. And we ought to recognize it more fully and more communicatively. We ought to say more often than we do, I found favor from the Lord. You're a gift to me. Number eight, believers treat the poor with kindness. Believers treat the Lord, treat the poor with kindness. Verse 23. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. Now this is hard. This is difficult. You could take this proverb in several different ways. I'll only give you two of them because of the way the NASB translates it. I think there are two options here. If we take the way the NASB translates it, Solomon would either be saying that the poor man goes to the rich man for food with an attitude of humility and the rich man gives him an answer which is rough and harsh. That may be what it's saying. The poor man utters supplications, that is, requests to the rich man. The poor man does it humbly and the rich man responds in a haughty way and he answers roughly. That could be what it means. Or... Even this same verse could be taken another way. It could be that the poor man is offering his supplications, his needs, before the Lord himself. And he does that humbly. And he receives from the Lord whatever the Lord has for him. But in contrast, the rich man, because of his riches, he doesn't offer any supplications, any requests before the Lord. He's rough. He's harsh. He's haughty. He's proud. He's arrogant. He's trusting in his riches. He only knows of his earthly riches and he counts on that and he's rough before the Lord and he'll receive his consequences. Could be that. I tend to think it's the first. That if a person who is poor gives his requests before a man who can supply it on this earth, i.e. a rich man, and the rich man responds with a haughtiness, 
with a looking down his nose at the poor man, and he answers him in a harsh and a rough way, maybe Solomon is saying, my sons, don't be that way. Treat the poor with kindness. If they come to you with their supplications, endeavor to meet their needs. You have the riches. They don't. Give to them out of your abundance for their poverty. Treat them with kindness. That's the way believers ought to act around the poor. Number nine and last. Believers choose their intimate friends very well. Believers choose their intimate friends very well. Look at verse 24. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So wise. Remember chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Could be something like this. You have a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances, a lot of people you depend on, a lot of people you have fellowship with, a lot of people you look to, but in the time of adversity, when you really need them, what will all of these acquaintances do? Will they come through for you? Will they meet your need? Will they be there when the crises happen? Maybe not. Probably not. But a friend, a true friend, maybe one, sticks closer than a brother. Maybe even Solomon saying here, you've got physical brothers, but you've got a friend like David and Jonathan who sticks closer even than a brother. Choose your friends, your intimate friends, the one person, the two people that you would choose to rely on and lean on and look to and depend on when all others forsake you. Do you remember in this regard one of the saddest passages in all of the New Testament? The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Listen to this. Listen to the pathos in Paul's voice as we close. Listen to what he says. Make every effort to come to me soon. That has urgency to it. 2 Timothy 4.9 Make every effort to come to me soon. Why, Paul? For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. Remember the, the dispute with Mark? And Barnabas and Paul, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. There's a friend. There's a friend who was sticking closer than a brother. But Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas, and with Carpus and the books, especially the, par- uh, the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm, The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. And then this sad verse, verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me. But all deserted me. And then this gracious tone, may it not be counted against them. 
Lord, they flew the coop. And I needed somebody with me. And they all deserted me. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And who was that for Paul? The next verse. But the Lord stood with me. (laughs) The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Oh, my friends, choose your intimate friends very well and very carefully. Believers are characterized in their conduct in those nine ways. And in their wisdom, their speech, and another multitude of ways. And unbelievers are characterized with even more characteristics. Let me ask you tonight, as your heads are bowed, which way are you living? What kind of life are you living? Are you living down the path of the wrong way? With all of the characteristics that mark a non-Christian? In your speech and in your conduct, are you characterized as an unbeliever? Or would you, upon the survey of your life, say, no, I'm on the right way. I have the characteristics of the wisdom and the choices that, that do reveal that I'm a Christian. But I must admit, it doesn't seem as though I'm following a good bit of these Proverbs as I otherwise should. Oh, dear Father, thank You for giving us this Christian look at Proverbs 18. We have Your Holy Spirit. We have Your written revelation that tells us the right way to live, the right kind of wisdom, the right kind of choices. And with all of these characteristics, Lord, make it ever true of me when I read a chapter like this. Make me grow in it, Father. Make me mature as a believer characterized in Proverbs 18 should be. And if you're not a believer, confess to the Lord that you've been characterized this way And as the survey of this great chapter reflects upon your life, you know you don't know Christ. You're an unbeliever, characterized with the words and the conduct of unbelievers. Cry out to Him. Ask the Lord to save you. Ask Him to make you a believer. Ask Him to 
allow you to begin to be characterized in a completely different walk of life so that He might be honored and that your life might change and that you would walk the right way and not the wrong way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.